0: Okay, Fictoplasm episode 84. Well, listeners, usually the format of the show is somehow connected with fiction. Occasionally, though, I want to make an exception, and this is one of those. I'm going to talk to the proprietors of the Everway Company and the forthcoming release of the Everway Silver Anniversary Edition, a game that's very dear to my heart. So, without further ado, here we go. Well, listeners, I'm delighted to welcome to the show Jesse MacArthur and Rich Rowan. They are the Everway Company... Uh, i responsible Sorry. for la- launching the next version of Everway, the Silver Anniversary Edition. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Um, so, would you like to introduce yourselves?
1: Yeah, uh, my name is Justin Magappa. I uh, have basically uh, been involved with Everway from the early days, Uh Uh, Rich sort of brought it back from uh, uh, Gen Con in 1995 as an employee of of Wizards of the Coast. And I got involved with it right after, and we started playing it a lot. Um, I went on to found uh, Rubicon Games with uh, Rich and several others. um, And then later, we uh, uh, kind of uh, acquired it again. Uh, through Gaslight Press. And so basically, I am uh, sort of a longtime fan of Everway and sort of uh, interested in lots of different role playing uh, board game uh, puzzles sort of things and have various interests and hobbies there.
2: And I'm Rich Rowan. I'm uh, kind of the, I I guess the leader, we're really partners in the Everway company, but uh, I first Uh, encountered Everway when I was working for Wizards of the Coast. I had an opportunity to demo the game actually at the launch uh, back in 1995 and as Jesse mentioned I fell in love and brought it back and we started working on it and when the opportunity presented to acquire it we put in an offer and we got it and I was the project manager of the first supplement that was published after Wizards, Spherewalker Sourcebook, and then went on to a couple other projects. At that point, about two years later, I had switched over to the video game industry, so I've worked in the video game industry. and had a long career there for 20 years, and since then, I am now a college professor teaching game design and user experience design to uh, aspiring designers out there. And the opportunity has finally come up where we can republish everywhere, which is something I'm very excited about.
0: Oh, I, I, well, me too. Your contact came totally out of the blue, and I was overjoyed to to hear that you were releasing Everway after all this time. Before we get into sort of talking about Everway, do you want to talk about your personal interests?
2: Uh, so, yeah. Uh, actually, one interesting note is that Jesse and I are identical twins, and so we've been design partners together since we were four years old. So we've been together for... <laughs> over 40 years now (laughs) so uh, so we've been designing games for a long time and I fell in love with games and I actually majored in game design in college. I was probably one of the first people in the country to do so. I had to design the major myself Uh, but I've always been passionate about board games, card games, role-playing games, video games, puzzles, uh, puzzle design, so we run puzzle events all the time and I also, outside of games, um, sailing, <laughs> I think, is the main one. Oh,
0: sailing, wow.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I'm pretty much the same on a lot of the game stuff. I uh, definitely am more involved in uh, some of the technical side of things. I've built uh, projects myself, and I've... Uh, and built websites, and I was was one of the admins that started up RPG Geek uh, with uh, the board game geek crew. Um, and I do a lot of reading and other things like that. But lately, it's been a lot of uh, working on Everway. Yeah, a huge amount of fiction reading. We've always been big sci-fi and
2: fantasy. Book fans.
0: Well, I think I want to ask you about that in a little bit because, of course, it's, we have to at least play lip service to that because the stick of the, the stick of the podcast is uh, is um, fantasy fiction and inspiring games. But I think what I'd like to ask you about first is um, you touched upon the the history in in the opening bit, and and I'm fascinated by this because as an outsider, and of course, in the early internet days. The, you couldn't search this stuff particularly well either, so what I saw for a long time was the Gaslight Press website with some coming soon stuff, and I think a whole lo- a load of GeoCities fan sites about you know Amberway and various other ways of hacking everway and we've been waiting for a new version for some time. So I wondered if you'd tell us how the the, the title changed hands i mean you you've had the you've had the IP since since you optioned it is is that correct since you purchased it
2: yeah basically it's been in just in my hands basically since since wizards actually so we've been kind of continuous keepers of it although it's gone through different names so yeah with rubicon uh we acquired it from from wizards and Uh, started that off and Rubicon Games went on to merge with a local Seattle-based game retailer Um, and over a few years they ran into some financial trouble and we were still shareholders and stuff so at that time in 2001 I believe it was uh, I personally purchased the line again from from Rubicon Um, (laughs) because I didn't want it to disappear into potential bankruptcy and insolvency and all of that. And my goal, and so about that time, I was publishing D20 material uh, for D&D third edition open game license D20 products. And my intention was to publish a second edition then. But what we found was that the same problem Still existed from the very first acquisition. And the problem was that when Wizards printed it, at the time a typical RPG would sell 3,000, maybe 5,000 units, a, a big hit would sell 10,000. Wizards printed nearly 40,000 copies. And then three months later, they decided we're not going to be in role playing games anymore and canceled all of their role-playing game lines. And then, of course, the next year, they bought d d <laughs> So really, the decision was, wasn't was to say that role-playing games are bad. It was a decision of, at our scale, unless we can be the biggest player, it's not worth our time. And then an opportunity came for them to be the biggest player. And unfortunately for them, they had already canceled all the role-playing game lines by then. But as a result, what happened is There are a couple things that happened. So with so many products sold, it ended up flooding the market. And uh, people purchase, and when I say people, I mean distributors and retailers purchased the game originally because it had a lot of art in it. So they said, oh, this is the Magic the Gathering RPG. We will sell infinite numbers of these. Let's buy everything we can. And then they found out it wasn't the magic of the RPG, and it was this very really kind of ahead-of-its-time advanced, diceless role-playing game that was kind of presaged a lot of the uh, feature development of the indie RPG movement. And so they didn't really know what to do with it, and so a lot of it got liquidated. And it was really only until about... 2018 2019 that that back uh glut of product finally cleared the marketplace and you could instead of being able to find it for like three dollars or five dollars on ebay or i should say online auction site <laughs> of of whatever uh. it is uh but it, now it's was finally kind of going back for a list price or or even higher and so Obviously, it's, for those of you that don't know, Everway is a very art-heavy product. It has, like, over 200 images in it. Well, the core game had, like, 120. Uh, but it was a very expensive project to produce. And in the days before Kickstarter, print-on-demand, any of those things it would have required an enormous capital investment based on where we were with our career we didn't have the financial wherewithal to do that obviously we're better off now and we're in the day where we got options like kickstarter and print on demand and all of those available so that's kind of why we started off in 2002 with that and you know i had such a love for the product and we spent a lot of time over the last 25 years thinking about what to do with it, how to reformat it, and how to make it work. Uh, even during that time, we even considered selling the line a couple times to people that might um, be able to do what needed to be done with the product. And those talks always fell through. You know, we were in contact with Jonathan Tweed, who's the lead designer for it, yep. throughout that time. And he would occasionally forward, somebody contacted him and he'd forward interest. I'd reach out to them and then they wouldn't respond or talks would start and then fall through. Um, but really the the goal was to get it back into print and, and do it in a way that we felt that the product deserved because it was such a unique and special product.
1: We really wanted somebody who was really passionate about it and got it, right? Right, and I think that that's part of it is we had a we
2: had a vision for it, and we wanted just it to go to somebody that also had a vision for it. And so, back in two thousand nineteen, early two thousand nineteen, um, Jonathan uh, and I met for coffee, and he's like, "Well, uh, there's this other company that's interested. Should I have them get in touch with you?" I was like, "Yeah, have them make me an offer um, because." I want to see what they can do, and they came back, and there was concern about the the, light, the contracts because Everway owns all of the the rights to the art, but in the way that the Wizards contracts were written, there was it, it didn't foresee um, digital distribution, and so all of the royalties for the art was all based on printed copies arriving in the wizard's warehouse and so it was kind of ambiguous about who got paid when so that was the company we were working with that was their main pushback it's like well we're gonna have to renegotiate all those contracts and I said tell you what why don't I do that and so I went and did that and that was something I'd been avoiding because it's a lot of work I spent the all of 2019 into early 2020, uh, getting all of those contracts renegotiated. It was over 40 artists, over 80 contracts. Uh, some of those artists had disappeared, right? I mean, like, literally one of them
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, had uh, had kind of a midlife crisis, had gotten an ugly divorce, disappeared off the net- network entirely, cut off all social media, email etc and i had quite the time tracking him down um i finally found a reference to him online after nine months of searching for a voting registration like i didn't know where he was so i tracked him down to at one point to in 2016 to a cattle farm in wyoming and i called him up (laughs) and said no he didn't leave a hoarding address he went on to I think his sister in Arizona, I talked to his uh, (laughs) ex-wife, found her, uh, was (laughs) able to find out the sister's name in Arizona, uh, found out she had divorced, looked like she had moved to Seattle, though. And Anyway, he eventually popped up on a voter registration roll in about early November of 2019, and he popped up at a neighboring town. It's about two hours up the road. In fact, it was the, the town where I went to school, so I, I was familiar with it. And they don't publish full addresses for voter registration rules, but they publish the street and the precinct. So the street, uh, Alabama Street, happens to be a very, very long street, 60, 80 blocks through uh, the town. And... I was like, well, it goes through residential neighborhood. That's probably hundreds of places. But because of the precinct, it narrowed it down to, oh, the northern border of that voting precinct is Alabama. So I know it's on the south side of the street. Furthermore, I know it's only a 10-block stretch. So I got in the car and I drove to Bellingham and I went door to door knocking on the doors. Until I found somebody that said, yeah, he lives over there. <laughs> and <laughs> I went to that house. There was no marking, so I wouldn't have known otherwise. I just would have gotten no response. But I left a note, and about a week later, he he got in contact with me. And we started talking. He's like, yeah, I love every way. He had, he had stopped making art entirely. That's how kind of burned out and dropped out he was. Wow. Uh, he's like, this is the only product that I would consider uh doing art for again and we kept talking over the next several weeks and it's like starting to think about reopening a studio and doing art for forever way and it's like but i'm in the hospital right now mm-hmm. so we talked back and forth and it's like we were doing the contract stuff on the computer and he's like well i don't have access to a computer right now and i's like would it be easier if i just drove the contract up to you he's like sure yeah come on up um and so jesse and i got in the car and i was like i'll be there in an hour and a half and we came up and uh got the contract taken care of had a really nice visit with him he's a super nice guy he's really Um, awesome yeah um and we were talking about you know doing future stuff and getting together and so we came back to seattle and then a couple weeks later, because I was helping him find a computer, and he stopped responding, and I didn't get any response. And then finally, uh, from an earlier reach out back in August, his sister got back to me in, I think it was February or so, and said, "Yeah, actually, he passed away." Uh, oh, he. Yeah. He never got out of the hospital, and he died about three weeks later. Um, Wow. So
1: so I feel really fortunate that I got a chance to meet him and talk with him. Yeah, and especially to tell him, like, hey, this art is important to us. And he felt really kind of pleased that people remembered his work uh, fondly, you know.
2: Yeah, it's kind of a
1: legacy, right? So
2: it's a bit of a legacy for him.
1: Yeah. So that's a bit of a oh, downer, but it's sort of this like an example of the kind of saga that we actually uh, dealt with in, in many fronts, trying to uh, uh, bring bring everybody back to back to the hands of everybody.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I mean, if you if you had uh, multiple aborted attempts to find somebody to take it off your hands with the same interest, and and then had trouble tracking down the artists. Um, that kind of explains why it's it's now we're getting to hear it. Right. Um, oh, wow.
2: So we got like 98, 99% of, I think it's just shy of 99% of the original art re-signed, got all the rights cleared up so we can publish it cleanly, including author contracts and all of that stuff. And so at that point, rather than I was like, well, I've done the hard work. Why don't I just go ahead and finish it, (laughs) right? Yeah. Um, So Jesse and I started working on it. Uh, We were talking with Jonathan about maybe doing a second edition. And uh, we were, well, definitely we are talking about doing a second edition, and we were originally looking at this edition as, let's republish the first edition kind of as is, as a way to remind everybody of what the product is and get them back on track and then <laughs> then we couldn't and, help ourselves <laughs> yeah. and, and then we were like well maybe one more thing
0: i think maybe that leads us on to uh talking about your actual experience with the system i mean i, I think it's it's uh it's clear that you're you know, this is a labour of love for you, and that's one of the reasons why you obviously think Everway is so good. For me, personally, I think um, Everway was, not only was it ahead of its time, it's actually that there is nothing like it. And it gets so far away from uh, the uh, minutiae of, of role-playing design, the class structures, well, it paints the heroes with a very broad brush. But what I wanted to ask, and I know there's a lot of the content you've, I think you've, you've pretty much retained. All of the original content from from the the original printing That's is that right. correct? I mean, the, by by that I mean the, the the copy. And obviously, you just said you've retained nearly all the art as well, which is fantastic.
1: Yeah, I would um, say that we kept all of the art that was in the original and brought in some of the Spherewalker source cards, which was a separately published product. Some of yes. that art in as well, and then in terms of the copy, um, the actual the stuff that was in the White Box Everway box set, uh, pretty much most of that content is there, although we uh, significantly reorganized it and broke it mm-hmm. into a more referenceable chunk. And so there's a lot of rearrangement, but it's a lot of the same text. And then uh, we added material to kind of make the the bridges flow naturally. So basically the way I think of it is the, the, the core of it is the original game. But then we yeah. went... And added some additional pieces to kind of uh, flesh it out and to sort of provide some answers for some of the the feedback that we've gotten over the years, uh, you know, on different topics to kind of help bolster that and sort of fill in some of that material, basically develop the game a little bit more. It's what normally happens. Um, A game gets designed and then it gets developed to enhance it and reorganize it and improve it that's kind of what happened for silver anniversary edition
0: all right i mean uh, when you say developed is it to clarify some of the text in the original area and provide um, original ever way and provide examples context and that sort of thing is that what you mean
1: yeah a little bit of that but also um things like uh we provided some um Additional scaffolding to to deal with uh, magic, for example, because that was one of the feedback items. Uh, so we added a new uh, tradition of magic that kind of acts as uh, both a, a tradition that you can use directly out of the box, as well as kind of shows a little bit more of the scaffolding of how you might create your own tradition. So that's one example of something we added. Another example is uh, the original text was sort of a mix of. Uh, it's sort of intermingled the, the terms Everway and Roundwander. Obviously, Everway is the name of the game, but it's also the principal setting in the, the game. It's a multiverse setting. And in the center of the multiverse um, are all these, basically all these spheres, or think of them as worlds, are connected through gates. And in the central sphere is uh, the one place among all the spheres where tons and tons of gates come together. 71 different gates come together in the realm of Roundwonder, the kingdom, if you will. And the capital city of Wander is Everway. In the original yeah. version, it sort of conflated what Everway and Roundwander were. So we teased those apart and added like 20 pages of material about the larger realm of Roundwonder. So that people who are more familiar with uh, sort of traditional campaigns, like a, a, a you know a fantasy realm or something that has a map and has sort of like places you go, we added a little bit of that flavor into the core game by providing a map and providing some of that that setting material, so that there was a nice landing place for those those folks, so that they could feel comfortable before they launched off into their tracks across the spheres from there.
0: Yeah, one of the things that uh, always struck me about the original is how much is devoted to one single city in a multiversal setting when, by definition, your sphere walkers are going to be travelling far and wide away from that setting for most of the time.
2: Yeah, part of the reason that um that was the case is jonathan wanted to leave it really really open like originally he wasn't even thinking about providing even that much of a setting he wanted to leave it that open um but people just couldn't get a grounding so they provided the city and then leave it open so yeah i agree it it didn't have a whole lot for all of that and we have plans long term to to build that out a little bit
0: yeah, I mean, I I think Everway—the way it was written in the original—is uh, you could play a whole game in Everway with all the interesting families and characters who travel to many different spheres and still have a game of intrigues or or high adventure in Everway itself. Yeah. So, uh, and and you can you can see why, um, but I can see totally why that that you would want to also have a starting point that everyone could relate to. Right.
1: Yeah, and even if people came to it later, it's it's a well-known place among the spheres. And in the future, we want to add additional places like that um, that maybe have different flavors of, of mythic fantasy. We've sort of really leaned into the mythic feel of, of the game. And, but different people have different tastes, and so there might be other places among the spheres where it's more, maybe a little more gritty and other places that are a little more um, high fantasy and and that sort of thing. But uh, at its core, Everway is really a, a mythic game where you play the heroes of, of myths, basically.
2: Not literally the heroes of myths, but heroes like the heroes of myths. That's and right. by heroes of myths, I mean Achilles, Gilgamesh, Finn McCool, Uh, all of those larger than life. Not deities, but heroes.
0: Yeah, avatars, people who would have stories written about them that would uh, be passed down through generations, that sort of thing.
1: That's right. right. And that's what you're doing when you're playing, is you're essentially collectively writing new stories about new heroes. Because the characters that you play on average are four times better than the average human
2: at everything, right? On average.
0: Yeah. I was, I was actually going to ask you because, of course, there, you mentioned the indie movement, and um, the and that, of course, is also a, a tendency to move to a more minimalist type of game, or, or maybe not just minimalist, but focused on achieving a particular aim uh, in in a game. So, for example, you know, Sorcerer or Apocalypse World. I don't have uh, a lot of experience in the Forge era. Indie games, but one of the things I know that came out of that was they they got very interested in um, uh, the the GNS theory, the um, uh, game narrative and um, simulation, which is kind of and, and they cite Everway as the source of that. Yeah. What do you think about that?
1: I, I think it's very much spot on in many ways. Um, like there's games that talk about fiction first and like Everway is all it is, is all fiction in a way i mean it's about telling collective stories obviously there's a few different mechanics for doing that and different indie games have explored different ways of of kind of driving at uh, narrative structure over time uh, and you know things have evolved and moved on and there's a lot more um, gm list systems and so on now that still get core feel but it's really we agree that this is like everway is a very story driven game.
2: Yeah, I would say that uh everway is a very minimalist game presented in 700 pages of amazing content. Yeah, that's yeah. right.
0: <laughs> so I'm um, on that subject then about um indie games. And having had 25 years between the uh, the first printing and today, ha- have you uh, have you been influenced by any of the sort of the the what is the new school of role playing and the um, the the wave of self owned creator owned and much more um, improv uh, based role playing games have? have, have um, have you uh, had anything to do with that side of the hobby?
1: Yeah, we haven't done too much. We did a little bit more in that space. We published this very tiny uh, game that was sort of in that space, but early on. Um, I would say that we've been watching what's what's happening there, and, of course, I, I buy you know all, all these books that come out and um, mm. and sort of look at them for ideas of how to how people are thinking about really about games, really. Um, but so in some ways, it's influenced kind of our notion of of where we might go in the future, but again, silver anniversary was really about bringing this great thing from the past and adding some. Uh, optional rules and stuff that might appeal to that crowd, uh, but keeping the core of the game very much playable as it was back in 1995.
2: Yeah, one yeah. criticism back in the day was that oh uh, is too much GM fiat, right? Uh, and so that's obviously a, a big point on in modern indie uh, game. So we did add some optional rules for those people that want more collaborative play. To be able to allow more player control of the gaming experience.
0: Oh, great! I mean, have you got any examples of, of what you added, or interpretations or reinterpretations well, of the system?
2: Sure. Um, I'll have to very quickly uh, kind of summarize the core game rules, which is that there's three ways of moderating a game of Everway: the law of karma, what should logically happen; uh, the law of drama, what makes the best story. And the third is the law of fortune so every way includes a custom fortune deck uh, which is a tarot-like deck of 36 cards which acts as a kind of a random element um, so you draw the card and whether it's upright or reverse and it has specific meanings for each of them whether it's trickery or uh, the creator or uh, the usurper is a special card um, any of those are available so Every way as a system, as a player, you would always choose one of those drawings as your virtue, fault, and fate, as your character. And one of the kind of ambiguous mechanics was about characters would meet their fate, at which point they could update their, their choose a new fate, or virtue, or fault. And so it was kind of left up in the air. So we added, as an optional rule, the ability for a player to call on fortune and say, Ah, in this situation this is going to be resolved using fortune specifically my virtue which is this fortune card with this draw and this is why it's relevant and this is how it affects the game and this is what's going to happen and if everybody's kind of in agreement with that great you move on um and so you kind of have kind of three pocket draws uh, of very specific cards
0: that's really great
1: yeah, it's optional. So for the people who want that level of control, there's a mechanic in there that you can choose to integrate yeah. that, or you can play it the way it was back in 1995. And it accentuates something that's already there.
0: Right. Exactly. I was I was just having that thought. It doesn't change what's on the character sheet. It doesn't require any additional moving parts. It just tells you that you can use your character sheet in in a new way. That's right. That's um, yeah, very nice. So I I want, I'm conscious of the time. I want to move on to now ask you about supplements and the thing I really want to know is will there be a reprint of Spherewalker?
2: <laughs> you know, that's a, a common question.
0: <laughs> Funny you should <said> mention it. Uh
2: <laughs> there Spherewalker will be back in, in some form. Um uh, so Greg Solsey, and we are talking about how best to do that uh it's high on our priority list spherewalker is obviously near and dear to greg's heart as well as mine because it was the first rpg supplement that i was the project manager for so yeah. um so i think it will be a slightly expanded form uh part of it is kind of conceptualizing the line it used to be a big box set with a bunch of parts and now it's been converted to a hardback series of books, book one, players, book two, game masters. We think that book three will be adding more sphere-like settings, which would be a natural complement for Spherewalker. Mm. But we're not sure if it's going to be part of that book or if it, we're going to just leave it as its own thing. But it's high priority for
1: us to come to bring that back. Yeah, it, basically right now we have a lot on our plate with uh, essentially five products with the two books, um, uh, the, the deluxe fortune deck and original fortune deck, as well as we are making the, the vision cards, which are these vision images basically drive uh, character hero creation and so they are included in the books but some originally they were separate cards and some people like them that way so they can spread them out and be inspired by them um so we're we're making them available in that format too and so what we decided to do was basically take sphere walker source card art as well as the vision cards that were in the original box set sort of mix them together put those in the core book so you actually have more than 200 images of art in the, in the, in the new combined two-book set. Um, and what we wanted to do is, in order to make those available in an economic fashion, we didn't want them to be collectible. So we did non-collectible sets sort of thematically organized into sets of 12 cards. So if you really wanted to get only one card, one specific card, you could go buy the 12-card uh, set that, that had that. Or if you wanted all the cards, we have these collections. Um, so um seven seven packs of twelve in each collection. So there's two collections to represent what's in the in the core book.
0: Yeah, I must say, um I really thought that it, it wasn't um uh, the best idea to sell randomized boosters for the no. uh, additional vision of cards back in the nineties. Okay. Um I you know, I got um I, I got a, a spare copy of Everway. I also managed to pick up a whole trade pack of 36 boosters, and to, to and that was the way I knew I would get my 90 vision cards, 90 extra ones. Yeah, believe um, it or
1: not, we actually still have some of those original boxes. Uh, so wow. I, I've held on to them all these years, and we'll probably make them available to sell the remainders of those sets as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so on the on the subject of Vision cards. So if you've got the original artwork, um, that is of course a potential for an expansion as well. Do you do you anticipate doing additional Vision cards?
2: We we are planning on doing new Vision cards. In fact, we've commissioned like I think ten or twelve new pieces just for this edition. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's part of what made Everway so expensive and so hard to bring back. So yes. we're being a lot more judicious about the use of art. Um, but, you know, it's full color, um, beautiful painted art, really. Uh, so we are planning on releasing it, but not like big 90-card sets. It'll be like a pack right, of 12 cards, and it will be driven by... Uh, source material so as we publish new supplements and commission new art we'll package that material up into packs that people can get and add to their sets.
0: You know I, I think that sounds a lot more attractive for the consumer as well because obviously then you've got a direct link to the supplement you're putting on the table with the art cards That's and right. that, that, that sounds terrific.
1: Right and so each book sort of funds its own uh, set of art that goes with it.
0: Yeah and on that subject of uh, you you mentioned the the fortune deck and you mentioned deluxe fortune deck so is there an intention to expand the fortune deck or simply to have alternative versions of the fortune deck? Uh,
2: so to the first expand the fortune deck yes and no. Uh, no in the sense that the core game is and always has been based on the original 36 card fortune deck and that will continue to be the case. However We have created a new season deck of if you treat um the fortune deck as a major arcana if you will the season deck actually acts like a minor arcana four suits of four seasons uh ten cards in each um and then one heavens card that acts as a randomizer for that but the season deck is really purpose for uh those that want to use the fortune deck as an oracle deck because combined it's 77 cards traditional uh, tarot deck is 78 cards so it allows you to use it in that way but then the season deck for the core game for the role playing game can be used in a couple ways we anticipate some people will actually play with the entire fortune deck plus season deck for moderating the game um, But that's not at all expected or required. And then the other things that you can do with that Season deck is any of those cards can act as the Wild Usurper card. As I mentioned, the Usurper card is special in that its meaning changes based on where you are among the spheres. So you can actually use these cards as this is the Usurper card for this realm and actually insert it into your deck and have its meaning and all of that right there. You can also use it as, set it to the side as, uh, this is a season deck, so anytime you draw one of the four seasons cards from the original deck, you could instead draw a card from the season deck. You know, that's another optional way to use it.
0: That sounds terrific. One of the things that I always um, I enthuse about the fortune deck is the way that it connects an artifact to the table to the game world, that it's actually a thing in the game world. And being able to tune the deck Aren't for each realm that you visit, with a maybe a different usurper, um, by using the season deck, I think that sounds uh, uh, again really great, and it also maintains the integrity of the thirty-six card deck, but you get the variation each time. Right.
2: The other thing I should mention about the deluxe fortune deck is that they're full tarot size cards rather than the poker size cards of or the original deck. No. Oh. So, so they're you know the. by 4.75 inches or whatever that is in millimeters. I forget the conversion.
0: All right. Is there anything else you'd like to say about Everway?
1: Yeah, I think the most important thing that we want to say is, you know, like we're about to do a Kickstarter right after the new year. And so um, that it's going to be available for people to back and get excited about. So that's, that's something that we're very much pushing toward right now.
2: The other thing I'll mention about that is that most of the five products we're launching in that Kickstarter, which is a lot, uh, four of them are done, and we're finishing the last one now, hoping to be done by the time the Kickstarter starts, so that we'll be able to, as soon as the Kickstarter's over, very quickly print and fulfill that. Of course, you know, in the, the time that we live in and the craziness of the world, we're giving ourselves plenty of time to actually do the fulfillment, uh, but we think that you know we'll be able to fulfill this Kickstarter very quickly relative to most
1: kickstarters. Yeah, modulo you know things sitting in customs and that sort of thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, all sorts of things could happen, but I think um, given you know so given how some kickstarters have gone. It is great that you can start by telling your, your backers that the copy's done, that the content is there. This yeah. is to fulfill the printing.
2: We're, in yeah. fact, going
0: to be able to show,
2: because we've done test prints through print-on-demand, we'll be able to show that this is what the book will look like here. <laughs> it's
0: printed. It's in our hands. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, That's great.
1: Yeah, we've we've actually held all but the, the last product. and. Uh, in addition to some of the things that I talked about earlier I guess there's there were a few other things that we've added um, things like greater clarification around uh, hero uh, boons and so on so better guidance for that we've added uh, three new quests uh, one of them was previously published in a lesser-known everway product called realms of the sun uh, but we this So basically, this particular version uh, edition will actually have four full-length quests uh, within it. And so you'll actually have a lot of material to start with.
2: Yeah. So if people want to get notified about the Kickstarter, they can go to everway.com and sign up for our mailing list to get notified. And we'll let them know as soon as it launches. Yeah. All right.
0: So before we go, Obviously, this is uh, you know this is a fiction-based podcast, and um, we're exploring the, the connection between fiction and uh, role playing. So, what I'd like to ask you both is: what are your uh, fiction touchstones, um, particularly with reference to Everway? But you know, talk about whatever you like, really.
1: Yeah. Uh, it, it's in fact, it's interesting. You mentioned earlier uh, the Amber Way stuff, which is basically a, a taking the Everway mechanics to play uh, uh, in Roger Zelazny's uh, Amber world, um, Nine Princes in Amber, and so on. There was ten books and five short stories uh, based in that world. And uh, the reason why I mention it is because it was a huge. It's it's still my favorite book series. Um, and so we always followed that uh, particular development with a lot of interest because we are a huge Roger Zelazny fan, um, and uh, we we uh, that sort of mythic writing is uh, is it's both high fantasy and low fantasy in some ways, uh, but it's it's sort of the cosmology is larger than life, and it sort of really transcends genre boundaries and so on. So that series, I think, was a growing up was a a touchstone for us and then um of course we've been interested in history and so on so we read a lot of mythology and uh and uh kind of classic literature as well as a lot of kind of modern fantasy and sci-fi um like I'm a big John Scalzi fan I uh uh, uh you know uh Charles Lint for urban fantasy um there's a lot of different influences that we have um so, yeah, I, I, I think it's an interesting mix of classic uh, works as well as uh, some of the kind of more modern uh, 50s and, and later uh, sort of authors.
2: I would say to add to that, I still remember um, from second grade, um, just is like, I found this amazing book in the library, uh, at the school library. And... It was a book called *The Black Cauldron*, and we fell in love with it. We read the whole series. Uh, *Narnia* was a uh, a big one that we read. Uh, I remember in third grade when we were living in Denver, making a trek downtown to the public library and checking out books on Greek mythology. And my mom was like, "Are you sure?" And I was like, "Yes, this is awesome." <laughs> So I read a lot of mythology, even you know, as an eight, nine-year-old, um, and then after that, you know, huge read thousands of books, mostly sci-fi and fantasies. Heinlein, uh, Tolkien. You know, Tolkien, of course, Star Wars, Pern books, um, Magic Kingdom for Sale, you know, by Terry Brooks, Canara. Uh, so, you know, all of those alternate worlds, more recently, uh, kind of in the Everway period, obviously Amber is, is also my favorite series, coincidentally, uh, by Charles de Lint um, uh, as urban fantasy, I've read a lot of Charles de interested in maybe doing something in that space, uh, Charles Strauss, Charles the Strauss with the Merchant King Merchant Princes series. Merchant what is it called? Merchant, Merchant Princes, I think. Yeah. Right. So that's kind of been a recent one that I've been a fan of. I've got the new Empire series queued up on my podcast or not podcast, but uh Kindle, getting ready to read those. But I've been a little busy this last couple of years <laughs> with every way, so it's been sitting there ready for me to read it. So yeah.
0: Good picks. Okay. Jesse and Rich, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, And uh, once again, listeners, the Kickstarter will be out in the new year. Watch your Twitter feeds. Uh, Certainly the Fit Twitter feed will publicize it as well. So Jesse, Rich, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Absolutely delighted. It's great. Thank you very much.
0: Hey, listeners, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this content, please like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast and on social media. The music for this podcast is by Chris Sabrisky. Find out more at chriszabriskie.com. Until next time, bye.